Hello, and welcome to The Confident Commit, the podcast for anyone who wants to join the conversation on how to deliver software better and faster. If you're looking to build a toasted ship, tune in less confidently commit. You're listening to a bonus series all about AI. I'm your host, Rob Zuber, CTO of CircleCI, the industry leader for all things CI and CD. And today I'm joined by CircleCI's very own Michael Webster, Principal Engineer. Hey, Webster. Oh, we're going to call you Webster on this show because that's what we do. And I don't know how to do anything else. All right. consistent. Hey, Webster. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. I'm super excited about this. I unsurprisingly know lots of what you've been working on, but I think that, uh, you know, as I look around, there's so much desire for information and how do we, you know, how do we make progress? How do we figure out product, et cetera? Um, and so excited to, to dive into it and share it. So just to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at CircleCI uh, on the AI front, sort of what areas you've been exploring and, and what kinds of things you've been trying to achieve? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I, I would say, I would maybe put it into two broad buckets, right? So, so you know, AI is a very exciting technology right now for people building software, but sort of building software itself, having AI write your code, find bugs, um, that sort of that sort of use case. Um, but then there's also sort of um, more and more people building uh, building software with AI, and then sort of how does that change? Uh, how does it change, and how is it, how is it the same in a lot of ways uh, to how we typically think about software delivery? So. On that first bucket, sort of uh, applying AI techniques to, uh, you know, to building software itself. Um, I've worked recently on. I think you, you chatted with some folks about the error summarizer. So this is kind of a, hey, we've got these really long stack traces. Can we kind of quickly give you a, a recommendations of, you know, what what the problem is? So you as a developer are not having to kind of eyeball through a very deep, you know, Java Java stack trace. Um, also looking at the idea of using AI to sort of just fix the bugs for you, right? If, if we have a thing that can write code. Um, can understand errors and, and explain and come up with suggestions. If we give it some extra context of you know what you the developer are actually doing with your diff, can we can we fix it for you automatically? Um, that's that's a little more experimental, um, but uh, but that that's kind of on the the AI for software. Um, and then most recently, what I've been focusing on is if you're building an AI empowered product, we, we've ran into these problems, right? We've we built this tool to do an error summarizer. How do we make sure that it's good? Um, so thinking a lot around, okay, you've built this AI product, you can get up and, up and going really quickly. How do you make sure it stays working? How do you make sure you can run it in a cost-effective way? Um, sort of, and also understand when it breaks, because at the end of the day, we're, we are still kind of writing software. Got it. Well, let's, let's follow that second trail for a second. You mentioned a couple things in there. You know, how do I know it's good? How do I, how do I scale it up? What's, what's sort of uniquely challenging, and maybe go into a little bit more detail around those or, or other things, about building and testing AI enabled applications compared to sort of, you know, your background, our background as an organization, building and testing, we'll call it classic software. I don't really have a term for it yet, but yeah. non AI enabled products. Yeah, t- totally. I mean, I think by far the biggest issue that you have is that these, the output of these, of these large language models in particular are, you know, probabilistic and non-deterministic, right? So mm-hmm. when you're writing software, in a classic software, you define your business logic, right? You can sort of trust that the database, if you issue a query, the data that you put into the database, it's going to come back in the same form as you wrote it. Um, you, you really don't have a lot of those guarantees with uh, with with language models, right? And that, that, that makes sense. Uh, language is subjective. There's lots of right ways to answer uh, the same question. 
um, with different wording. There's different styles that you might want to want to impose. So that that probabilistic aspect of it. And then I, I also think kind of maybe an, an under look or a kind of you know, underestimated aspect of this is the subjectivity, right? And that, that kind of comes from the non-determinism. Um, a lot of these problems, it's, it's almost kind of like a UI, a UX kind of design. You kind of have to look at it and say like, does it does it seem right? Is it is it answering the questions the way that I want? Um, in addition to this sort of correctness problem, and I think that's that's largely where a lot of my focus has been on um, how do how do we evaluate these these chains that the, the these uh, applica- applications that people have built. Got it. Well, I, I actually think that UX UI analogy is really interesting because we think about I mean from a from a pure software perspective have built many many tools around ensuring that a button is on a page sort of thing, but they don't tell us if that button is in a good spot, is it alluring to the user, you know, whatever, like, does yeah. is it optimized for the flow of the user? And so as a result, we get, you know, it, it's always a human sort of driven feedback model, right? Whether it's before, you know, like watching people doing research, doing sort of like trial runs, et cetera, or after, putting things in production seeing how people respond to it. And so does, does that carry over then into how you're thinking about testing for some of these, you know, non-deterministic parts of applications? Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely becomes a thing that you now have to, to evaluate for. Right. So, um, you know, we can maybe get into the, the nitty gritty of how some of this works, but the, the general, the, the term that folks have adopted for this is this idea of evals, right. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of comes from, uh, it kind of comes from more of the research side of things. This idea of you've built a model, you need to evaluate it against the mm-hmm. standard set of benchmarks. Um, but in practice, when you're building an AI application, you really have to test for your use cases, right? It, it, it doesn't really do you any good if a model does really well on like a kind of industry standard benchmark that's good for comparing models against each other um, if you're sort of producing the wrong outputs for your, for your customers. And so, um, yeah, so when, when you think about evaluating um, these systems, there's definitely the correctness aspect um, there's non-toxicity, but there's also a sort of like you, you might think of it around like helpful, right? If you're mm-hmm. if you're writing a, a a bot to sort of answer questions, um, you, you might want the AI to be a little more friendly uh, and not just sort of like here's the facts, right? Um, depending on the the tone you want to strike. So yeah, there there are definitely these sort of subjective uh, evaluation criteria that you that you want to evaluate, and unfortunately they're subjective, right? So you you, you kind of have to you have to spend some time tweaking and, and playing around with it. Um, and we're starting, you're starting to see some of that in how a lot of the tooling around um, building these applications is evolving to make it easier for people to, um, to, to, to play around with these, these kind of subjective criteria. So yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I think there's like, you said we can get into the, the depths of it a little bit. I mean, the thing that, that really seems interesting to me and all I can think is turtles all the way down is this notion of LLMs testing LLMs. And so I, I think when that was first introduced, there was a lot of, well, the LLM will just say I am right, but the reality is LLMs don't care yet, right? They don't have personalities and opinions. They just have whatever they generated. And so can you can you talk a little bit more about how and how that works and like why it makes sense to to use that kind of tooling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll I'll throw in like a term for people to Google if they're interested. So so model graded evals, sort of the 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 catch all term for this. You can usually you can find some good resources on this. And so the the basic idea is okay. We've trained this large language model on a ton of text, on a ton of you know human produced output. We are now asking a language model to produce you know human sounding output 
Um, so, you know, how do we make sure that it's right without resorting to just string matching kind of thing, which doesn't really work because of the, the probabilistic nature of it. And so the, the, the approach is like, well, we've, we've got a thing that kind of understands text. Can, can we ask it questions around about its, about its own output um, and then have it, have it graded, right? So this, this is, again, model graded. If, if you actually look at some of the terminology, if you look at the prompts that people use, they kind of use the analogy of a student and a teacher. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's, how, that's how a lot of these prompts are structured. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the theory basically is that, you know, hey, we're, if it's able to tell you an answer to a question, can it, does it all, it's also been trained on like, oh, that's not a great answer. Let me reword this. Can, can we also ask it questions around how to, how to evaluate it or how, how well the output performed? Now, I, I will say there, there's a certain level of caution here, right? Um, I think the folks from Hugging Face have done some really good research. Um, certain models prefer their own output, right? I think GPT-4 mm-hmm. actually has a slight bias to, to prefer output from GPT-4 over other models, which is kind of not, not super surprising, right? Uh, yeah. It's notion of correct. And I, I put notion in air quotes because there's, you know, there's not really a world understanding of these models. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probability distribution, if you, if you want to uh, be, be precise. Um, so yeah, it, that's that's kind of the that's kind of the idea is, is is have have something that kind of knows again in air quotes uh, what good looks like and and just mm-hmm. ask it um, kind of like how you might ask ask a human to to eyeball a um, eyeball a web page. Okay, does this does this seem right? Use the model. Right. Yeah, I th- well, I mean, the the thing that's interesting in there is, yes, have a human look at it. But in this case, at least getting to a place where in a, I mean, obviously, we think a lot about CI and CD pipelines, like as I'm iterating and delivering, I have a tool that can say, this is good enough, maybe not this one. So on, on the point of biasing towards your own, I, I struggle to not give personality to these machines, biasing to your own output, are there... Uh, sort of common practices or real value that we're seeing in using a different LLM to validate, like then you kind of get two views of the same sort of correctness. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And I'll even say it's, it's sometimes the bias isn't even model specific. Sometimes it's like position specific. So mm-hmm. I, I forget the exact stats, but it's like, if you ask it, uh, compare left and right, kind of, if you think about it, like mm-hmm. it, there's a bias towards the left to always say like the left is correct. So, mm-hmm. so, that, that creates this, I mean, again, you, you kind of have to think about your risk tolerance for those sorts of things. Yeah. But a lot of the ways that you would approach it would be, and it's, it's actually interesting that some of the, some of the maybe less used software techniques, uh, but like table-driven testing, right? So it is like, give it multiple scenarios, right? Weight them, um, you know, run, run through multiple examples. Randomize is obviously one, one, way, to, one way to approach this. Um, and so it's, it's really about sort of building up confidence, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to test on a single example. You might want to test on multiple examples, tweak the wording a little bit. There's kind of, um, I'm going to keep drawing analogies to traditional software, but you think of like mutation testing, go in, randomly change the code and see how it fails. Um, you, you can do that with, with these LLMs, take, take the output and use like maybe a cheap model or, or GPT-4 if you, if you got the, got the cash, um, and ha- have it reword the question and ask it again to, to evaluate, um, and sort of, Tweak, tweak the inputs a little bit um, to just just to give you some more confidence, right? If you're repeatedly getting the same answers, you you can you can respond with with a you, you can proceed with deploying with a with a pretty high degree of of confidence. But at the end of the day, right? There's not it's not a human actually evaluating it. It's, it's not your test cases are not production, right? Um, and so I think some of that human review is still very very important. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's there's going to be some 
nervousness. I can't, I can't think of a better word right now. So, you know, around all of this for a little bit. I think one of my key takeaways from that description is, as you talk about bias, none of the tools are going to be perfect. So you need to understand the behavior of the tool and build your system in a way that's going to allow you to, you know, offset that behavior, I guess, is, is the best way that I can describe it. No, like there's, there's nothing perfect. There's no single, like, as long as you do it this way, everything's going to be great. So understand your context, understand your tools, and then know how to apply them. Uh, because we'll just throw it out there and hope that our customers love it. It's not necessarily going to be a fantastic strategy. Like, you definitely want to find a way to... Yeah, true. Yeah. Absolutely. That's <laughs> for, one for thing any, that we've yeah. learned many years now. Um and, and so sort of taking that knowledge from research around evals and how do you apply the stuff and then bringing it into sort of, you know, applied software delivery, if we will, um, feels like a, at least there's there's hope. We, we see signs, we see approaches, we're still learning from them or learning how to use them and improving them. Um, the other thing that you mentioned in there, uh, sort of off the cuff on GPT-4 was if you have the cash, you could do this. So, you know, this is an interesting concept where the foundation models are so powerful that many of us are, don't even have to train or build anything to to get to a point where we have like a, an interesting product, right? At least a product idea, put it out there, see if people are responding to it, then maybe we'll tailor it. But at the rate that we have all subscribed, I guess, to like testing, test-driven development through to CI/CD pipelines for every change, deploy like multiple times per day, I can imagine that the very large set of test cases you're describing starts to you know, ring the cash register, if you will. Um, how are you thinking about strategies around um, around approaching that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a great question. I mean, I, I you know, co cost is definitely a factor, right? But humans also human time is also really expensive. Mm -hmm. So, like, use, using the more powerful models, I think, is a is a really good strategy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think to to your point, yes, if you attempt to retest every case possible, right? Like, then then that will become prohibitively not even like cost uh, expensive, but like time expensive, right? I mean, these these LLM output, these LLM models are kind of they're not high throughput query systems, right? They're they're mm -hmm. they're not they're like yes, there's a lot of infrastructure so that in aggregate that they can they can support you know however many tens of millions of people are using them, um, but they're they're not kind of like tuned like a like a database would be for for high throughput operations, and so like time becomes expensive, right? You you would. You know, I, I would imagine, or not imagine, I, I, the way I think about this, it's kind of like testing with production, right? The, the goal of testing is not to test exhaustively. If you wanted to test exhaustively, you would log every single request your application had ever gotten, the output of it, and you would replay it every single time. And that might give you a ton of confidence, but it would be very time consuming. Um, I think you would use similar strategies with AI. What, what, are the, what are the important flows, right? What are, what are the most critical sort of user journeys that you care about? Um, what are what are failure modes that you're particularly concerned about? Um, if, if you've got an application that's like free for chat, you probably have to con you, you need to be concerned about people um, adversarially prompting, right? Pe mm -hmm. People asking you to like oh, people love to go into these LLMs and, and ask them to say terrible things, right? right. Um, so you, you probably want to consider that sort of sanitization and, and moderation um, for your application. If you're largely focused on you know internally classifying. Uh, you know, survey response feedback, for example, you're, you're probably, you know, you maybe aren't as worried about these use cases. So I think, I think that you still have to think through what are the core user journeys? What are the things you want to test? What are the absolute minimums of your application? And then what are the things that, you know, hey, if something goes wrong, 
right? If, if an LLM gives kind of like a, a mediocre answer or it can't really can't really solve the problem, it's it's too too complicated. Making sure you have code to handle uh, fallbacks and errors um, when they when they produce, you know. So this sorry, this example comes up if you're using uh, function calling, which is a feature OpenAI kind of launched first, which is like you can tell it, hey, I have this function that accepts a JSON payload. And you, you kind of tell the LLM to call your function, but what you're really using it for is serialization. You're using it right. to, to take the response and structure it. Um, we, we found this with the, the, uh, the self-healing pipeline work. Those function calls are not always 100% accurate, right? Sometimes it doesn't mm-hmm. give back valid JSON. And so like then it becomes like an error handling strategy, um, which again, kind of falls back into a normal software development flow. What, what do you do? Do you, do you retry? Do you, um, do you just say like, okay, we'll go down a fallback path? Um, that, so, so I would say, yeah, like, Understanding the, the critical user journeys, identifying data sets that are sort of you know critical like table stakes for for the LLM to answer that you always want to evaluate, and then probably mixing in you know error handling, and then maybe the last bit would be um, building a kind of the idea of a data flywheel where where as as people are using this application, putting in a mechanism to provide feedback could be as simple as thumbs up thumbs down, could be behavioral if they reprompt, if they regenerate a response. I'm um, mm-hmm. tracking that and then using that to, to feed back into your, your testing system so you can sort of build up confidence over time. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, interesting space to think about. Like, you know, like, unsurprisingly, I'm applying a lot of what we think about, we'll call it classic software delivery, all of the tools that we've built over the years to mitigate risk and how they can be applied in the space. And, you know, we, we collect signal as we're deploying for example, or releasing software around how our users are behaving, but it's mostly, you know, response times, are we getting errors, are people clicking or not clicking, but everything the user does is some sort of feedback about how the model is performing or how your your product built on top of the model is performing and being able to really analyze that, like, do people take the next step or do they walk away? Do they reprompt to your point with the, you know, and what is the structure of that reprompt? Is it, you know, could you change this slightly or is it, what are you even talking about? Is there a human that I can talk to? Like, I think it's that, that whole scale and the signal is in there and figuring out how to parse out that signal uh, will be, will be a fascinating journey. And, uh, you know, to, to really hammer your point home, focus that energy because it's a hard problem on the things that are going to be of greatest value to your users, right? Like where, where are you truly differentiated? How is this capability going to truly differentiate you? And can you invest the energy there? Which is not to say, I guess, the first feature you should build if you're thinking about building AI features is something absolutely critical to every person's flow because maybe you should, you know, apply the sunscreen in a, in a spot that no one can see just to make sure it doesn't, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that yeah. should carry through to your testing strategy too, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There, there are absolutely things that are invariants that you you want. You'll you'll spend the money for a really expensive eval for those things, and for other things yeah. you might use, you know, dis- distance metrics or, or some other kind of cheaper, uh, quick, quick, uh, quick way to check. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. You you need that that user feedback. It's, it's a very valuable signal. So we've talked a lot about how easy it is to get started, and then some of the things to consider around just making sure um, it's. You know, it's working, it's providing value to customers. I think one other thing that people are thinking about, because we love to think about this as engineers, I don't know how much of how many of us are there yet, is then how does this scale? And sort of, okay, it's actually not accurate enough or it's too expensive. Like what sorts of tools do we have at our disposal right now to to figure out how to scale a, a platform? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I might, I might break down scale in a, in a couple of, of ways. Right. So, I mean, there is literally like, can you handle the traffic load? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that, that might be th- those decisions might be, do I, so like, let, let's assume you're going to use a, a foundational model. It, it becomes like, not so much am I going to train the model, but will I, you know, pay, you know, a- Azure has an open AI deployment. You, you can buy your own GPT for hosted thing. Like th- mm-hmm. those sorts of things, do you, do you purchase your own or do you kind of stay in the, the pool with, with open AI? Um, and you can do that with, you can get some dedicated capacity for, for certain foundation models, um, from other providers. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of scale kind of, again, that's kind of a classic throughput, uh, throughput level. I think what you're maybe getting at is, is sort of what it, what it really comes down to at a certain point is kind of cost, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, is that more, that's more your question? I mean, so yeah, the, 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 the token fee based model providers. So there's kind of two broad ways that, that people get charged, right? Usually hosted model providers charge you per token. Um, it's not really per word due to details of how the models are changed per token. Um, so they, they, they charge you on a per token rate and you can usually go through and, and look at reports and costs. Um, open AI recently, their, their cost reporting, they started breaking things down by what's GPT three, five versus GPT four. Because now they have these like fine tuning models, which maybe we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so I mean, honestly, it's just kind of like look at the bill, like look at the invoice, like see see where the see where the costs are going, and then sort of compare that with with what's the what's the value that you're that you're getting. And so yeah, you, you kind of need that link to what are your product metrics that you're trying to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, when when you talk about cost, right, the cost management, some of it is like, do do you fine tune an open AI model to make the prompts shorter? Right. So you, you pay for tokens in and you pay for tokens out. Um, this is typically the pricing model there. Um, so yeah, how, how do, you, do you consider fine tuning? Um, do you sort of, uh, maybe push certain things to cheaper models? So this idea of like routing is if it's a hard mm-hmm. query, use the expensive model. If it's a simple query, use a, uh, use a, use a cheaper model. Um, the, the trick there, of course, like with any type of scaling strategy, right, is the more, knobs and paths you create through the system, the more you kind of have to manage and, and make sure it's working properly. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. And I think this, this problem, I sort of led with this, like, I don't know how many of us are there. I think there was some recent reporting about open AI themselves and sort of what it's costing them to, you know, to operate versus what they're generating, those sorts of things. But like, probably everything's going to get cheaper because it always does. Right. And there are tools out there that everyone is exploring and that that space is going to evolve quickly. I think we're going to say, Oh, okay. Under these conditions, to your point, like routing under these conditions, this actually will give you a totally good enough, or maybe an even better response for 50% of the price. But these are things you should be aware of as you're thinking about building these kinds of applications. I don't need to solve this today, but if I'm succeed, I'm signing up for this kind of work down the road. And so I should understand how that's going to play into my app. Like if, if I reach a point where I can't serve my users with this and I have to turn it all off, was it worth the investment? Unknown, right? But but know that that's kind of a, a thing that's coming up down the road is what I would think about it. Absolutely. And I not to not to keep leaning into the these are these are a lot of the same problems. This is true of any managed service, right? Mm-hmm. Any any managed service mm-hmm. becomes very easy to get up and running very quickly. Low operational overhead. You don't need to find an expert, which, you know, in the AI world, there's maybe 200, 300 people who can like really give you your own AI system. Kind of going to be hard to find those folks. So like, yeah, leaning into the expertise that folks have. I mean, it's a, it's usually a pretty solid strategy for software. As long as you're aware that at a certain point, there's going to be a bill, there's got to be a number where it's like, okay, like at this point, we need to, we need to start, start thinking around, you know, cost management and, and alternatives. Yeah. 
It, it makes me, when you said it's true of everything, like I think about all of the businesses that have been formed around cloud cost optimization. And I feel like we just predicted a whole category of like <laughs> foundation model cost optimization. Like that's probably, a bit, if you're listening to this podcast and you like just, you know, quit your job and you're not sure what to do with yourself, this is a business. I promise you. Uh, I don't know who's going to win in that space, but it's definitely going to be a business um, because it's it's going to get real fast. People are super excited about this technology. They're scrambling to build stuff with it. And, you know, and then the bill's going to come due and they're going to say, okay, this is amazing. We want to keep it. How do we just optimize it and, and get the right ROI? Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, very cool takeaway. Thank you so much for sharing details on all of this. Uh, very well explained as always. And I guess, you know, I didn't know it coming into this, but anyone listening who doesn't know what to do with themselves right now, we just gave you a business to go build. So that should be exciting. Uh, I think this whole space is super exciting. Uh, so thanks everyone for listening today. Um, if there's anyone you want to, Hear us interview topic you want us to talk about. Find us on Twitter at CircleCI. And of course, if you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on your podcast provider of choice. And share it with all your friends. Webster, thanks again for joining me. This was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Anytime.